Shabbat Shalom. My name is Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. And once again, thank you for joining us for our Arab Shabbat broadcast here on B'nishalom.tv. In all the ways you might be watching, whether that's on Facebook Live, our mobile app, or any one of our television apps, uh, we love hearing from you uh, when we get the messages and the words and uh, notes of encouragement that you guys tune in every single week uh, to join with us, to usher in the Sabbath, and to hear the Torah teaching. And uh, we greatly appreciate you being a part of this ministry in all the ways and in all the places that uh, you guys might call home. We thank you for being a part of this uh, broadcast. Right now it is March 6th, and uh, we are just now opened um, Tabernacles registration. We're very excited. Um, you can go to tabernaclesevent.com, and you can register your family there for the Feast of Tabernacles conference event that we hold in Chandler, Oklahoma, every single year. It's our biggest event of the year, where over a 1,000 brethren uh, come to they leave their homes, uh, dwell in RVs and tents and tabernacles and temporary dwellings to worship the Lord, to uh, hear great teachers, workshops, Fun for the whole family as well with kids programs and youth programs, late night activities, all kinds of things. Um, if you've never been a part of our Feast of Tabernacles, I really encourage you to, to look it up, see what uh, what it has to offer. For those that have been before, of course, you know the amazing, wonderful, blessed time that we have there at that event. Like I said, registration just now opened up this week. If you are planning on bringing an RV, we encourage you to get registered as soon as you can and get paid as soon as you can so that we can confirm your spot and your place in the campground. There's only so many RV spots available. And uh, it's a first-come, first-serve who's registered and paid in full before we can can confirm your RV spot. So if you're wanting to come and uh, dwell with us in that way, uh, we encourage you to get signed up. Once again, that website is tabernaclesadvent.com. You can see all the info there, and we hope that you can join us in Chandler, Oklahoma this year, once again for the Feast of Tabernacles. Registrations are also still open for uh, Shavuot, our um, uh, conference that is held in Dallas at the end of May. You can go to ShavuotEvent.com and register your family there. And uh, we're looking forward to another wonderful time there. That comes in the end of May. And also Camp Yeshua, our Messianic Youth Summer Camp, is uh, the dates for that is August 2nd through the 7th. And uh, we're looking forward to another wonderful time with all the youth. Over 300 uh, young Messianic believers come, celebrate together. Um, and have an amazing time uh, that only a good summer camp can provide. And so that uh, campyeshua.com is where you can register there. Those registrations are open as well. We encourage you, be a part of our ministry in any way that you can. Either come to your, our events. Obviously, you're watching one of our broadcasts. And, of course, if the Lord always stirs in your heart, um, you can make a donation to this ministry at llgive.com, and we can continue to provide this free broadcast and all of the services that we give and share with the brethren as the Lord has led us to do uh, each and every day, week, month, and even our annual events as well. Once again, thank you for joining us for this Arab Shabbat. Now let us set apart the Sabbath with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. Shell, shell. 
Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Now the Kiddush, the blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Amen Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Chamotzi, the blessing over the bread. Chamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Arunai Hamvorach. Baruch Arunai Hamvorach Leolaham Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michumocha. Micha mocha ba'elim Adonai. Micha mocha nedahar ba'chodesh. No horatechilot Now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat, la-asot et ha-Shabbat, la-drotam barit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Yisrael, ot-hit le-olam, k'shashet yamim asadonai et ha-shamayim v'et ha-aret v'yom ha-shavi shavat v'yinafash. All together, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. 
If you'd all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Vayed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha uv'chol meodecha v'heyu hadevarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha hayom alevavcha v'shinan tam l'avenecha V'depardabam b'shivtecha, b'yetecha, uv'lechtecha, v'derechu shakbika, uv'kumika. U'kershatam la'ota yadecha, v'heyu la'totavolt b'inenecha, u'chetavtam ha'mozuzo b'techa, uv'isharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
Shabbat Shalom. Please join us for the reading of Parashah Tetzaveh. You shall charge the sons of Israel that they shall bring you clear oil of beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. In the tent of meeting outside the veil which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall keep it in order from evening to morning before Adonai. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout their generations for the sons of Israel. Chapter 28. Then bring near to yourself Aharon your brother, and his sons with him, from among the sons of Israel, to minister as priest to me, Aharon, Nadav, and Avihu, Eleazar, and Itamar, Aharon's sons. You shall make holy garments for Aharon your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom, that they make Aharon's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister as priest to me. These are the garments which they shall make, a breastpiece and an ephod and a robe and a tunic of checkered work a turban, and a sash, and they shall make holy garments for Aharon your brother and his sons, that he may minister as priest to me. 
They shall take the gold and the blue and the purple and the scarlet material and the fine linen. They shall also make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of the skillful workman. It shall have two shoulder pieces joined to its two ends that it may be joined. The skillfully woven band which is on it shall be like its workmanship of the same material, of gold, of blue, of purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, according to their birth. As a jeweler engraves a signet, you shall engrave the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in filigree settings of gold. You shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel, and Aharon shall bear their names before Adonai on his two shoulders for a memorial. You shall make filigree settings of gold, and two chains of pure gold. You shall make them of twisted cordage work. And you shall put the corded chains on the filigree settings. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment, the work of skillful workmen. Like the work of the ephod, you shall make it. Of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, you shall make it. It shall be square and folded double, a span in length and a span in width. You shall mount on it four rows of stones. The first row shall be a row of ruby, topaz, and emerald. And the second row of turquoise, sapphire, and diamond. And the third, a row of jacinth and agate and amethyst. And the fourth row of barrow and onyx and jasper. They shall be set in the gold filigree. The stones shall be according to the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names. They shall be like the engravings of a seal, each according to his name for the twelve tribes. You shall make on the breastpiece chains of twisted cordage work in pure gold. You shall make on the breastpiece two rings of gold and shall put the two rings on the two ends of the breastpiece. You shall put the two cords of gold on the two rings at the end of the breastpiece. You shall put the other two ends of the two cords on the two filigree settings and put them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front of it. You shall make two rings of gold and shall place them on the two ends of the breastpiece on the edge of it, which is toward the inner side of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them on the bottom of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod, on the front of it close to the place where it is joined, above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. They shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord, so that it will be a skillfully woven band of the ephod, and that the breastpiece will not come loose from the ephod. Aharon shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before Adonai continually. You shall put in the breastpiece of judgment the Urim and Tumim, and they shall be over Aharon's heart when he goes in before Adonai. And Aharon shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before Adonai continually. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. There shall be an opening at its top in the middle of it. Around its opening there shall be a binding of woven work, like the opening of a coat of mail, so that it will not be torn. You shall make on its hem pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet material, all around on its hem, and bells of gold between them all around a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, all around on the hem of the robe. It shall be on Aharon when he ministers, and its tinkling shall be heard when he enters and leaves the holy place before Adonai, so that he will not die. You shall also make a plate of pure gold, and shall engrave on it like the engravings of a seal, holy to Adonai. You shall fasten it on a blue cord, and it shall be on the turban, and it shall be at the front of the turban. It shall be on Aharon's forehead, and Aharon shall take away the iniquity of the holy things which the sons of Israel consecrate with regard to all their holy gifts, and it shall always be on his forehead, that they may be accepted before Adonai. You shall weave the tunic of checkered work of fine linen, 
and shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make this a sash, the work of a weaver. For Aharon's sons you shall make tunics. You shall also make sashes for them, and you shall make caps for them, for glory and for beauty. You shall put them on Aharon your brother, and on his sons with him, and you shall anoint them, and ordain them, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen breeches to cover their bare flesh. They shall reach from the loins even to the thighs. They shall be on Aharon and his sons when they enter the tent of meeting, or when they approach the altar to minister in the holy place, so that they do not incur guilt and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and to his descendants after him. Chapter 29. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them to minister as priests to me. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread and unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers spread with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket, and present them in the basket along with the bull and the two rams. Then you shall bring Aharon and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting, and wash them with water. You shall take the garments and put on Aharon the tunic and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. Then you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. You shall bring his sons and put tunics on them. You shall gird them with sashes, Aharon and his sons, and bind caps on them. And they shall have the priesthood by a perpetual statute. So you shall ordain or Aharon and his sons. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting, and Aharon and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. You shall slaughter the bull before Adonai at the doorway of the tent of meeting. You shall take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. You shall pour out all the blood at the base of the altar. You shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the lobes of the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them and offer them up in smoke on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its hide and its refuse you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. You shall also take one ram, and Aharon and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall slaughter the ram, and shall take its blood and sprinkle it around the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces, and wash its entrails and its legs, and put them with its pieces and its head. You shall offer up in smoke the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to Adonai. It is a soothing aroma, an offering by fire to Adonai. Then you shall take the other ram, and Aharon and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. You shall slaughter the ram and take some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aharon's right ear and on the lobes of his sons' right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet and sprinkle the rest of the blood around on the altar. Then you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aharon and on his garments and on his sons and on his sons' garments with him. So he and his garments shall be consecrated, as well as his sons and his sons' garments with him. You shall also take the fat from the ram, and the fat tail, and the fat that covers the entrails, and the lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is on them, and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination, and one cake of bread, and one cake of bread mixed with oil, and one wafer from the basket of unleavened bread, which is set before Adonai. And you shall put all these in the hands of Aharon, and in the hands of his sons, and shall wave them as a wave offering before Adonai. You shall take them from their hands and offer them up in smoke on the altar on the burnt offering for a soothing aroma before Adonai. It is an offering by fire to Adonai. Then you shall take the breast of Aharon's ram of ordination and wave it as a wave offering before Adonai, and it shall be your portion. You shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering which was waved and which was offered from the ram of ordination, from the one which was for Aharon and for the one which was for his sons. 
It shall be for Aharon and his sons as their portion forever from the sons of Israel. For it is a heave offering, and it shall be a heave offering for the sons of Israel from the sacrifices of the peace offerings, even their heave offering to Adonai. The holy garments of Aharon shall be for his sons after him, that in them they may be anointed and ordained. For seven days the one of his sons who is priest in his stead shall put them on when he enters the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. Aharon and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Thus they shall eat those things by which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. But a layman shall not eat them because they are holy. If any of the flesh of ordination or any of the bread remains until morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. Thus you shall do to Aharon and to his sons, according to all that I have commanded you, you shall ordain them through seven days. Each day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement, and you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to consecrate it. For seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. Then the altar shall be most holy, and whatever touches the altar shall be holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And there shall be a one-tenth of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of beaten oil and one-fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering with one lamb. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it the same grain offering and the same drink offering as in the morning for a soothing aroma, an offering of fire to Adonai. It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before Adonai, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. I will meet there with the sons of Israel, and it shall be consecrated by my glory." I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aharon and his sons to minister to me as priests. I will dwell among the sons of Israel, and I will be their Elohim. They shall know that I am Adonai, their Elohim, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am Adonai, their Elohim. Chapter 30 Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit, and its width a cubit. It shall be square, and its height shall be two cubits. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns. And you shall make a gold molding all around for it. You shall make two gold rings for under its molding. You shall make them on its two side walls, on opposite sides, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall... Put this altar in front of the veil that is near the ark of testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the ark of the testimony, where I will meet with you. Aharon shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. When Aharon trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before Adonai throughout your generations. You shall not offer any strange incense on this altar, or burnt offering or meal offerings, and you shall not pour out a drink offering on it. Aharon shall make atonement on its horns once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to Adonai. Thank you for joining us for the reading of Parashat Tetzaveh. In this week's reading, we see some verses that can, we can very easily overlook in a casual reading, but they actually hold some very significant meaning for us if we just dig a little bit deeper. It says in Exodus chapter 27, verse 20, You shall charge the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil of beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. Now, we see this 
is repeated twice in the book of Leviticus. This very same instruction is given three times here in the Torah. Now, when we take a look at the instruction that's given and we break down the Hebrew there, it says, bring clear oil of beaten olives. That word for beaten in the Hebrew is the, the Hebrew word kahit. And kahit means uh, pure or, or pounded fine as if uh, going through a mortar. Uh, it's used five times in the Torah. And every time it's used, it's used in relation to olives. Uh, it comes from a root word katat. Now, katat means to beat, to, to crush through a beating process, to, to crush to pieces, to crush super fine. So with this type of uh, picture, it's, it's a representation of, of pressing, of, of crushing, of beating. This requires energy. It requires effort and it requires persistence in order to produce the type of oil that was acceptable for use in the menorah. It wasn't just something that was easily obtained. Producing this type of oil required diligence and strenuous activity. It's not a, a passive process. You, you can't just sit back and throw a bunch of olives on the press and watch it produce itself. You've got to get your hands dirty and you've got to exert effort. Now that we have a concept of just how much effort went into the producing of the oil for the menorah, we can start to understand what Yeshua was attempting to commun communicate to us when he told us in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, in order to produce the oil necessary to light the menorah in the tabernacle, the children of Israel were instructed to press, crush, and squeeze the olives exerting intense effort into this process. In the same way, if we want to be lights in the darkness, we need to press, crush, and squeeze our wills into submission and deny ourselves that what comes out of us might provide fuel for the menorah that lives within us. Yeshua says this of us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. Now earlier he said, I am the light of the world. But here he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are to be that light that leads others to the paths of righteousness. We are to be that light set on a hill like a lighthouse guiding ships to safe harbor. The question we have to ask ourselves, are we producing the oil that's necessary to light the lampstand? Are we pressing and crushing, not olives, but our wills, our flesh in such a way that we are able to get that stuff out of the way and be a light? Are we then placing our light upon Yeshua, our lampstand, that everyone might see it and see Him in us? Let's covenant with each other to crush our flesh, to pulverize our own wills, so that we can live for Him and be a light unto the nations for His name's sake. Shabbat Shalom.
Shabbat Shalom. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 43. Our portion for the Haftor this week, going with Tetzavah, begins in chapter 43 at verse 10 and extends through the rest of the chapter, chapter 43 through verse 27. Not too many verses here, and it's a pretty focused uh, uh, discussion for it. Uh, part of what this Haftor portion is going to deal with is going to deal with the subject of the altar and the ordination of the altar that's going to be in the temple, the Ezekiel's future temple. Now, we believe that this vision of this new temple that's given in Ezekiel, that this is the temple that will be in the millennial kingdom. That this is the temple when Messiah Prince has returned. That this is the temple where he will serve in and where we will worship the Lord in Jerusalem in the kingdom. And this uh, section of Ezekiel, several chapters here, complete, it's very consistent with what we're looking at in the chapters in Exodus right now. Exodus, Moses is giving us all the detail for the building of the tabernacle, all the materials to be assembled, how it's to be constructed. This week's portion specifically focused in on um, the high priest and the priestly garments um, and speaks to their ordination. Well, this uh, particular area of Ezekiel speaking about the future temple that will be in Jerusalem and uh, does the same kind of thing. It gives great detail about its construction, its size, how many doors, all of the things that are associated with it. And in this particular passage, it focuses in on uh, the altar that will be in that future uh, temple and the ordination of that altar to do it. And there's a, a very direct parallel passage uh, from our Torah portion that literally matches the portion that we have here. And that's the reason why this portion has been selected to go with Tetzavah. In fact, if you will, let me take you back to the actual Torah portion. Uh, and we're in chapter... 29 of Exodus. Now, Ephraim covered the first part of this portion about the priestly garments, but what follows as a part of this Torah portion, we come to chapter 29, and in the verses here, beginning at uh, verse 35, let me just read a couple of verses here, and you'll see the parallel. And thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I've commanded you. You shall ordain them through seven days. And each day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. You shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to consecrate it. So suddenly the uh, ordination of the priest is being concurrent with the uh, consecration of the altar. The ordination of the altar is coincidental to the ordination of the priests. The priests are connected to the altar. The altar is connected to the priests. And it goes on to say, verse 37, For seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and concentrate it, that the altar shall be most holy, and whatever touches the altar shall be holy. Now, with that in mind that we just read from this week's Torah portion, let me now take you to our Haftorah portion, and let me take you to a very similar passage in Ezekiel 43, whereas it says um, this. Um, 
uh, beginning at verse 18. He says, And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the statutes for the altar on the day that it is built to offer burnt offerings on it and to sprinkle blood on it. And you shall give to the Levitical priests who are from the offspring of Zadok. By the way, we're talking about the priests now, and we're, we're talking about what we're going to do with the altar, but we're now giving instruction of what happens with the priests at the same time, who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord, a young bull for a sin offering. A bull is served each day for the ordination of the priest as well as for the altar. You shall take some of its blood, put it on the four horns and on the four corners of the ledge and on the border round about. This is on the altar itself, and thus you should cleanse it, make atonement for it. You shall also take the bull for the sin offering, and it shall be burned in the appointed place of the house outside the sanctuary. And on the second day you shall offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering, and they shall cleanse the altar and, and as they cleansed it with the bull. When you have finished cleansing it, you shall present a young bull without blemish, a ram without blemish from the flock. You shall present them before the Lord, and the priest shall so throw salt on them, and they shall offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord for seven days. You shall prepare a daily a goat for a sin offering, and also a young bull and a ram from the flock without blemish shall be prepared. For seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and purify it, so shall they consecrate it. And when they have completed the days, it shall be that on the eighth day and onward the priest shall offer your burnt offerings on the altar, your peace offerings, and I will accept you, declares the Lord. The procedure for establishing an altar that is set up before the Lord is directly connected to the ordination of the priest that will serve that altar. In other words, it's the priest and the altar that really is coming together. Now, we talk of them individually and discreetly, but before the Lord, the priest and the altar is connected. And the ordination of the priest is coincidental with the ordination of the altar. The atonement for the priest is the same atonement for the altar. Um, we uh, have a tendency to, in past religious instruction, particularly from the Christian point, is that we see Messiah, we see him as high priest, as the book of Hebrews teaches, and as you heard Ephraim eloquently share that point about who the Messiah is to us, but it has a tendency to be divorced from the altar, that, that we don't emphasize the connection of the altar to the Messiah. We think the altar is things of the Old Testament, well, that's what this is the temple system, and we think of the Messiah... Uh, we barely give him credit for high priest, but we only use it from the standpoint of, well, that, that, see, that's a replacement for the whole temple system. That's the way I was taught as a Christian. And that is still the teaching of Christianity today. It is filled with great error. Even the Messiah renders it as error. In Matthew chapter 23, he says a religious man, says the gift, you know, the thing that would, the sacrifice that would be put on the altar, the gift, he says, is more important, more, more value than the altar. This is what Yeshua says. This is what a religious man says. 
And then he corrects that, and he says, Know ye not that it's the altar that sanctifies the sacrifice? It is the altar that actually defines what the sacrifice is. And oh, by the way, if you do a much more detailed study of the whole altar service, all the different sacrifices, how were they presented, how, what were the duties of the priest to prepare each sacrifice, how an animal would be brought in, what procedure did it go through, what process did it have to go through before it was ever put on the altar, and when it was put on the altar, and let's say it was a whole burnt offering, how did it come in as a small animal, and how did it become a whole burnt offering before God? And there's quite a procedure that's involved with it. And it, it, it's the priests who do the preparation. It's the priests who determine whether or not that, that animal sacrifice is going to be acceptable or not. And depending on what kind of sacrifice it is, a free will votive offering, a whole burnt offering, a sin offering, whatever kind of offering it is, the priests have different procedures on how they present it. And by their duties of presenting it to the altar in a particular way, determines what kind of sacrifice it is. Some sacrifices, and in fact part of the instruction of this here where it talks about the layers of the altar, let me just summarize it for you. In reading it, a lot of people don't visualize it very well, but there, there's a, a base, a large base that comes up. And whether you realize it or not, that first base determines what is called the bloodline. Some blood of some sacrifices are presented above that line. Some are poured out to the earth below that line. Passover blood is never presented on top of the altar. It is always poured out below the bloodline to the earth. However, a whole burnt offering, the blood is sprinkled up on the top. At the horns of the altar. There's a different presentation how you present the sacrifice to the altar. And those different procedures is what determines what kind of sacrifice is it. And how it's to be done. The priest had these duties to make the presentation of sacrifice. And it was based on the design of the altar. Above that bloodline was another layer that went up. And there was a shelf. This is a shelf that went all the way around. The priests would walk on the shelf. They didn't walk up on top of the altar. They walked on the shelf around the perimeter of it. And then slightly elevated above them is the horns of the altar and the surface of the altar. And on a great earth altar, there were three fires. There was a set of coals and fire that was to ignite the pyre. So when you started the altar, there was a perpetual fire that was kept going, kept going, so that it would light the pyre. The pyre was when they would prepare, say, for example, a bull to be brought up. There would be this log cabin fashion of building in the wood, and they would build up a structure of fuel, and then they would place the elements of the sacrifice, and they would parse out the parts of the animal, but they would arrange them up on the pyre in the shape of the animal. And then they would light the pyre. They would take some of that fire from the other part, they would light it, and it would burn, and it would consume 
the sacrifice. And at some point, sometimes the meat would come off of the altar and they had special hooks and tools where they, tongs, if you will, where they could retrieve portions of the altar that had burned and, and partially consumed and it would come off. And sometimes those were feast meals. So it was a big, in certain extent, it was a big giant barbecue pit. Uh, every time I go to a restaurant, and they always talk about a good wood-fired steak. I said, oh, well, we're going to get one of those like uh, that come off the altar. Because it was a big wood-fired uh, pyre that they would uh, consume it. Now, a whole burnt offering that would burn all the way down to ash. So a, a whole burnt offering was a very significant thing as opposed to most sacrifices, which went up. They were burned for a while and, and then pulled off, and they were used for meals and for food. And the vast majority of sacrifices that were brought, that's really what happened to them, the number of sacrifices. They usually would go on the altar, they would be burned to some extent, and then they would be brought back, and, and they would be taken home, and they would be used as a feast for your home, or the priests would consume it, or whatever the case may be, depending on the sacrifice. But a whole burnt offering, all of it was consumed right there on the altar. The other fire that was on top of the altar was select coals that had come from the pyre. It was just a pile of coals. What were those coals used for? Those were the coals that would go into the censers to burn incense. Those were the coals that would go inside of the sanctuary that were used on the golden altar to burn incense before the Lord. They would take those coals off the great pyre, the great fire offer, and the priest would manage the altar and its functions, keeping the perpetual fire going, uh, arranging and scooping ashes and or arranging the pyre for certain sacrifices to be presented and maintaining a good working set of coals to support the golden altar inside of the temple. And when a priest was stationed at night, to tend to the altar when the rest of the temple was closed and so forth. That was a pretty serious job for a priest to maintain and keep things going. He was to keep the coals going so that they'd be ready the next morning. He was to keep the perpetual fire going and so that they could light the pyre so they could immediately have the morning offering ready to go. And, of course, if a priest fell asleep and the fire went out, while well, the high priest would come in the morning, in the dawn, before the dawn of the day, and we referred to the expression, uh, he would come like a thief in the night. He would come before the daylight comes. And his first duty as high priest coming into the temple each day was to verify that there's a fire on the altar, and the altar has been maintained, and the priest didn't fall asleep. Now, if the priest had fallen asleep, and the fire was way down low, and had to be tendered, and or it had to be restarted, the high priest was the only one authorized that could do that. But what he would do is he would gather up some of the coals with his fire pen, and he would go looking for the sleeping priest. And these garments that the priest wore were not OSHA-approved fire-retardant garments. And he would light the bottom on, and the priest would wake up with his priestly garments on fire. And thus we have the exhortation that uh, is given to us in the book of Revelation. Blessed is he who stays awake and it does not have the loss of his garments. You and I, uh, Ephraim mentioned this, there's, there's an altar in here, there's a temple in here. 
By the way, guess whose duty it is to make sure the fire is on the altar ready to go for the priest when he comes in to do business with us? You and me. And the Messiah talks about that when he returns, one of the things he's going to be checking for in every believer, part of our accountability to the Lord, is there a fire on the altar in here ready to do business with God, ready to worship God? And he basically says, if, if there's no fire in here, there, there's nothing continuing on that altar inside this temple in here, he is authorized to light that fire. And by the way, you will not like it the way he lights that fire. You will suffer loss. It will not be pleasant for you. And your faithfulness is measured on how well do you tend the altar. Isn't that interesting? Because the average Christian says, we don't have anything more to do with sacrifices. And they literally testify, oh, the altar is cold. And they say it proudly. My goodness, have they been misinformed. This teaching, as other teachings in the scripture about the altar, are extremely significant to our faith. Not only as New Testament believers where we believe the temple of God has been formed here after the pattern of what we've seen in the tabernacle of the wilderness as well as that which was in Jerusalem. But the prophecy says, and this is the portion we're looking at, that when the Messiah returns, there's going to be a temple in Jerusalem. By the way, here's the description of the whole place. And there will be an altar there. And sacrifices will be being presented. And the Levites will be tending the altar. That's what it says is supposed to be in the Messianic kingdom. And that we will come and make presentation of our gifts to the Lord. That we will worship the Lord. We will not be setting up, please forgive me, I, I can say this because I used to be a Baptist. We will not have first Baptist of whatever town you live in in the Messianic kingdom. You want to worship the Lord, you'll go to Jerusalem and to his temple. And in fact, we really probably won't have much of synagogues or other assembly places. Everybody will know the Lord, and we will all go to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And when we go, we will not go empty-handed. We will go to do business with the Lord, to worship the Lord, and to fellowship with the Lord. And by the way, the altar is his table. This is how he does business between God and a man. And you will approach him in his temple by approaching the priests and the altar. You will follow the instructions of the priest, and your gift will be presented to the Lord on his table according to his rules. By the way, which is no different than if you have a guest come to your house and they're going to eat off your table, I can assure you that the protocol of your home table, you specify exactly how everything will be set on the table, set for your guests and for yourself. And in most nice and hospitable homes, the silverware is arranged in a particular place. The napkins are put in certain places. There's a dinner plate. There may be a soup bowl. There's drink cups that are arranged for it. There might even be different dishes that's used for dessert. 
or different things for the hors d'oeuvres or whatever. And there is a beautiful table that is set. And by the way, if your grandmother taught you correctly, you don't come to that table and park your elbows on that table. And you know as a guest, you're going to follow graciously and without argument the protocol of that table, whoever is the host. We all know that. We've learned to do that. And by the way, the Lord says, this is my table. Calls it an altar. We do business together. You bring your gift. It'll be joined with things I already have. And by the way, I have a particular way I arrange my table. I have a particular way I do my table. You come humbly before me. We'll do business together. And we'll have table fellowship. That's, there's nothing complicated about that whatsoever. So why in the world, and how in the world, did we get led so astray in our teaching about Messiah Yeshua that somehow altars and temples no longer have anything to do with our worship of God, no longer have anything to do with the Messiah himself? Where did we get that from? Well, I can tell you real briefly, when you dismiss the teaching of Moses and the Torah, you lose all these things. And some people say, well, I have the Messiah, I don't need Moses anymore. They are so sadly mistaken. They are going to be in shock when they come into his kingdom. And I'm not saying they're not going to make it in the kingdom. God is the one and true judge, and I think it's a bunch of them are going to make it. I think God's arm is not short, and despite them being sinners and ignorant and dumb and stupid and so forth, God's mercy is wonderful. (laughs) His arm is not short to save. But as he said, anyone who teaches another so as to know the least of these commandments, he shall be least in the kingdom. And there's a lot of people who here on the earth were high up in the social strata of the faith who are going to be least in the kingdom. And you know why? Because they don't have any table manners. They don't know how to come before the altar. They have no sense of what's going on here. Now, let me, I want to go to one more thing. I want to emphasize my point here. And um, if you think that was a powerful point, I have an even more powerful point on this issue. And it goes directly to the sacrifice of Yeshua himself. Now, when we picture or think of the sacrifice of Yeshua, we think of him being lifted up on a cross. And the common picture we have is he's, he's on the cross. And we see him giving his life, slaughtered as a lamb, and his blood is shed, shed as a result of the sacrifice for our sins and the payment for our sins. I don't disagree with any of that. I'm completely in agreement with that. That is absolutely correct. But there's something missing in the picture. The thing that is missing is the altar. If the altar and the priests are essential to determining the gift that is placed on the altar, to determine what kind of gift it is, for example, a whole bird offering or whatever, then how in the world... Did Yeshua, a man uh, who was sent by the Father, who uh, I believe was God, the Son of God, 
Uh, how was he transformed for us into the Lamb of God's sacrifice, the sacrifice for willful, defiant sin, the sacrifice that passes us from death to life? Because God has said that any sacrifice that's come must go through the protocol involving the priests and involving the altar. So where in the world were the priests associated with the death of Yeshua, and where was the altar as a part of that? When we look at the picture of uh, the crucifix, and we talk about being at uh, Golgotha, we're talking about something that's separate from the temple. We're talking about something outside the city. We're not talking about the things in the temple. So there seems to be a disconnect from all the protocol, all the teaching we have about altars and about the temple system and how it works and how we present gifts. And this is how God reconciles and makes atonement. This is how propitiation is made. Forgiveness is received for sin. All those kinds of things. And yet we have the Messiah off over here and it looks like he's completely separate and isolated. And by the way, that's the way Christianity teaches it. Now listen to what Yeshua said. He said, a religious man always emphasizes the gift, but that the altar is what sanctifies the gifts. It's the altar that's what sets that gift apart to determine what kind of thing it is. Where was the altar that sanctified the gift called the Lamb of God? Because if there was no altar and there was no priesthood presenting him to the altar, then... He was just simply an innocent man who was falsely charged and died at the hands of governmental authorities. The same thing could be said for you bring a lamb in. If you don't have a priesthood, if you don't have an altar, if you don't have something that sanctifies that lamb to be a particular gift to the Lord, it's just a lamb that is slain and cooked. And by the way, at my house, uh, we eat lamb. And I guarantee you, it's not presented to an altar. We just eat lamb. So how do we answer this question? Because I submit to you, there is an answer to this question. And it's part of the reason why there's such emphasis given to us in the scriptures about learning about the tabernacle, the temple, the altar system. It's because it's essential to understanding and following what the Messiah did for us. Now, we believe, and I'm joined by other scholars about this, that we think Golgotha, where it was really at, uh, the place of the skull, we think it was on the Mount of Olives. Now, why in the world do we think that? Well, anyone who has ever gone to Jerusalem and been near the Temple Mount and looked over to the Mount of Olives, that one of the things that you notice very quickly about it is that it's relatively barren. And in fact, the very pallor of color is a kind of a bleached white limestone look. And it looks like if you were to go out in the wilderness or outside and you found a skull of a man that had been dried out and bleached by the sun it's that color it's the it's the color of a skull 
And because of the tombs and because of the amount of limestone that is there, bleached out, washed out, and so forth over the years, there's a kind of a curving shape, like the curving shape of a forehead, and it's bleached out and it looks like the color of a skull of bones. And there are the ossuaries, the boxes with the bones of people inside. And so one of the expressions is, well, based on the look of the place, it looks like the place of the skull. That's a local expression, you know, for it. It's not a craggy-looking set of rocks that looks like a couple of eyes and a nose and of a skull, like you've seen it maybe in tourist photos of going to the garden tomb, and you have this view of this craggy-looking rock, which is part of the air bus station. No, by the way, in recent years, that's not worked out so good for them because some of the rocks fell down, and it doesn't look like a skull anymore. It doesn't look like the whole sockets of a skull for eyes and so forth. It just looks like a craggy rock thing. And, and you know how people would look at clouds and they see different creatures in the shape of a cloud. Well, this is, they looked at the rocks and they had a particular look. Well, the, just like clouds change, well, the rocks changed and so it doesn't look like that anymore. But the place over at the Mount of Olives, that smooth-looking area, that bleached white look of the limestone, still looks the same as it did before. In fact, there's ancient Jewish cemeteries there, still to this day, that exist in the days of Yeshua. Furthermore, the Mount of Olives to the Jews and to the sages, you know what they refer to the Mount of Olives? The Mountain of the Messiah. And the idea that the Messiah touches down his toe on the Mount of Olives is part of the thinking that this is the mountain of the Messiah. The Messiah comes to us by coming by way of that. And Yeshua used that mountain for a lot of his major teachings. I believe he was taken there to be crucified as well. And I believe he was actually crucified on that fig tree that he cursed that all he carried was the crossbar out, and he was hooked up on that very fig tree he cursed. And by the way, Bethany is just beyond the Mount of Olives, and he was traveling from Bethany into the city right through that place when he cursed that fig tree. And by the way, that was the same place where they would take the ash, they would, uh, they would set up the altar, the clean place for the ashes of the red heifer. That mountain is very significant in Jerusalem, and it's just right across the Kidron Valley, from the temple. There used to be a bridge between the two. It was called the Priestly Bridge. The scapegoat would be taken out that bridge and go to the Mount of Olives first before he would be dispersed to the wilderness. There's a lot of activity that actually took place in the Mount of Olives that's directly connected with the temple in Jerusalem. And I believe that Yeshua was taken out there. Now, let me give you the most convincing evidence I have as to why I think that. In Matthew chapter 27, there's a centurion who's given the duty to actually carry out the execution of Yeshua the Messiah. He and his detachment of Romans went out there, and they affixed him to the cross, and they lifted him up, and they, that's where he was crucified. When Yeshua died, that centurion gives us some interesting testimony. The first thing that he says is there was a great earthquake, a great darkening of the sky, and the tombs were opened. Now, that is the place 
down to the lower elevations of the Mount of Olives is where the big Jewish cemetery is. Some of the prophets are buried there. King David's son, Absalom, is buried there. And the ossuaries, they have these stone lids sitting on boxes. And when you have an earthquake, guess what happens? These lids bounce off. And thus it is said, the tombs have been opened. So that's the place that was a known cemetery, a great cemetery there, the city of Jerusalem, at the time of the Romans, at the time of Yeshua's death. But then he says this. He says that he saw the veil in the temple rent. Now, there's only one place on the earth that a Gentile can stand where he would look over the walls of the city of Jerusalem, look over the front court of the court of Israel, past the steps, through the giant doors that go into the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, and go into where he could see the veil separating the Holy of Holies, and he's testifying that I saw that veil rent. Now, it is possible for a Gentile to see that, but he would have to be directly to the east of all of that stuff on the Mount of Olives, slightly elevated. It's very possible he saw that from that location. Now, if that be true, and here's the clincher, here's my point. If the centurion looking the direction toward the temple could see that, you know that he's looking over the top of the altar? The altar, the great earth altar sitting in the temple. He's looking over the top of the altar into the sanctuary, into where the veil is at. That means that God our Father, who's sitting on the mercy seat, sitting from the position of the Holy of Holies, looking out past the veil, looking past the sanctuary, looking over the top of the altar, he sees his son elevated and giving his life. And that altar in Jerusalem sanctified the blood of the new covenant, and his blood was poured out to the earth as is required for a Passover sacrifice. It is not required to be put on an altar. It is required to be poured out before the altar to the earth. And oh, by the way, just to add a little fun to this, the ceremonial Passover sacrifice, not the Passover sacrifice where you'd bring your own lamb in and have it slain for you to have. I'm talking about the one for the temple service for the whole nation. The Passover sacrifice is not handled by the common priest. It is only handled by the council of the temple, which includes the high priest and the Catholican and the Gezberim. And the council, and there's only 14 members of the council of the temple. The New Testament Gospels tell us that when Yeshua was accused, brought before them, was condemned, and was presented, it was at the hands of the council of the temple. There were no other priests involved. Whether they realized it or not, and I don't think they did, They followed the exact protocol of the altar that is required, that was established by Moses and the Aaronic priesthood for the presentation of the Lamb of God's sacrifice. They followed the rules precisely. The priests and the altar were together. 
the Lamb of God was presented, elevated above, because all sacrifices on the altar are called elevation offerings. He was elevated above the altar, the line of sight from God. He looks out, he sees the altar, it's sanctifying the Lamb of God's sacrifice. There's the Lamb, it is slain, the blood is poured out properly. He was lifted up by the elders of the temple. He was taken down by the council. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arathea were two men of the 14 of the council of the temple. They're the only ones that handled his body when he came back. The altar had a lot more to do with this than people realize. And so when God speaks of the holiness of the altar and sanctifying and ordaining the altar and ordaining the priesthood, it's a very, very serious business. And by the way, into the future, this Haftor portion, speaking of the altar and the temple that will be in the millennial kingdom, I can assure you that when we come worship the Lord, this is going to be a very special place. And even though our faith is in the Messiah, this will all be treated very special with him because he's connected, he's part of it. Now, mind you, as Ephraim pointed out to you, not only was he the sacrifice, he's the high priest of this temple too. You cannot separate him out from these things. These are all his plan. This is all the way he does it. This is the way he sets ta the table. This is the way he does business with a man. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a guest at your table where you've invited someone into your house and been a guest at your table and they just misbehaved terribly that they just didn't have any table manners. They just uh, slandered and abused honorable things. That they used, um, you know, they, they tried to eat peas with a knife. You know, or they decided to lick things they shouldn't lick. And you, you know what I'm talking about. The, the, the kinds of things you can do inappropriately at a table that, that brings shame on themselves and embarrasses the host and embarrasses people at the table. And it's not a pleasant experience sitting down having dinner with this person. They're crude. They're ignorant. So I wonder, how does the Lord look upon many of us and our brethren and with our disregard that we have for his holy altar, his holy temple, and his table he has set for us? I have heard Christians speak with utter disdain. Oh, I hope they don't bring back animal sacrifice. Oh, I don't want, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Okay? Well, I'll tell you what usually happens in my house is somebody doesn't want to follow the protocol of my, my table, my dinner table. If you don't want to behave as a guest, get your carcass out of my house. I'm not going to let you sit here and perpetually embarrass yourself and us and make me feel bad because I invited you to my table. If you don't know how to behave, well, then I'm not going to let you sit around and misbehave around me. And I, I have news for you people. I, that sense of justice that's in me, I'm here to tell you that Messiah God, Messiah King, his, his justice on this is impeccable.
And it is true and right. We need to learn these instructions so that we can honor the things that are honorable. So that we can follow his protocol for his table. He's done much for us. In fact, he's the one that set the table for us. We need to learn the table manners of the house of the Lord. And learning about the altar and his temple is crucial to those rules. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this Sabbath. Thank you for your instruction about your temple, about your house, about your altar, your table. And Lord, for the wonderful things that the Messiah has done for us as our high priest and how he has set a feast table before us. And as we come up on the season of eating the feast of the Lord, I ask, Lord, that you put within our heart to do these things in a very worthy manner as you have warned us to do. And I ask, Lord, that you would give us a new vision, a new perspective of the table you set before us, offering us redemption, to bread that we eat and we're not hungry anymore, a drink that we drink and we're not thirsty anymore, of all the things that you share with us freely, although we are not deserving of any of them. Help us, Lord, to come to appreciate who you really are, value, love you, and help encourage us, Lord, to strengthen us as we live out and walk out our most holy faith. We ask this in the name of Yeshua, Messiah. Amen. I want to say one more quick word. I want to say thank you to all of you brethren who tune in on this broadcast and join with us. Um, you know, the numbers that we're looking at right now, there are more than about 23,000 of you in computers that log in each week. We know there's, in some cases, multiple people at each of the computers, um, some individuals at some of them. I want you to know that you are part of a great worldwide assembly that is observing and keeping Sabbath. It's not just you alone. Many brethren are joining with you to keep this Sabbath this week to the Lord. Amen? Amen. All right. Thank you very much. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, please now turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, to chapter 11. Hold your finger there at verse 13, where our Brit Hadashah uh, portion and readings will begin for this week. And as you open the scripture, let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for opening your scripture and your word to us. Make it come alive and powerful. Open our eyes and our ears, Lord, to hear your words that you would have us to hear, to share. May we, our faith in you become stronger every time that we dig into your word and your instruction. Father, not just the times here on the weekends when people uh, hear the teachings and the studies and go to their congregations and fellowships, but, Father, may the word of God be like bread that nourishes us each and every day. May we always be remember to open your scripture and to let it come alive to us each and every day. We thank you now for this time and this opportunity uh, to dig into your word. We love you, bless you, and thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Our Torah portion... For this week is Tetzaveh, which uh, comes from uh, right at the very end of Exodus chapter 27 and extends through a couple of chapters all the way to, um, to the middle of chapter 30. As I said before in last week's portion where Moses is receiving all of this word and this instruction from the mountain uh, on, the mount, on Mount Sinai and is... Um, seeing the pattern of the tabernacle, the establishment of the house of God. Last week, we talked about the Ark of the Covenant, table of showbread, uh, the menorah, 
And this week we are talking about, it starts initially talking about the olive oil that is to be brought to be used as fuel for the menorah, for the lampstand. That's a couple of verses at the beginning of our portion here. And then the rest of our portion goes into the consecration of the high priests, Aaron as the high priest and his sons, the consecration of the Levitical priesthood, and the construction and creation of the articles that the priests would wear, namely the high priest that had great, beautiful garments that were uh, that had very specific meanings and purpose to each in the, of the elements of the creation of that garment. So we're talking a lot about the high priest, and we're talking about, initially, this olive oil that's going to be crushed and beaten. To bring out some of this, uh, the teaching and the, the, um, the symbolism of what the Torah portion is about, well, I want to dig into the New Testament and hopefully bring out some of these teachings and some of these things, how they might relate to our Torah portion for this week. So taking us here to Romans chapter 11, this is the great teaching about the olive tree that Paul is giving and sharing, talking about how Gentiles are going to come in and be fed and to be nourished by the foundation and the root that has been established with the scripture, with Torah, and with the testimony of the Messiah. So reading right here from Romans uh, 11, starting at verse 13, let's dig in. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am a, an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them, for if their being cast away is reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? He's talking about how, if, as he shares and speaks to the Gentiles, let all of the natural born, those that are of his kin, as he was a Jew, that they won't be saved by all the words and all the things that are being encouraged as well. And he continues on in verse 16. For if the first fruits is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root. The root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off that I may be grafted in. Well said because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Here we have the story of that, that I believe is one of the most powerful passages of Scripture that speak to the idea of it doesn't matter what your natural descendancy is. 
you are a part of the family of Israel, the people of God. Israel is likened unto an olive tree, not just here, but in other parts of Scripture as well, in the sense that this olive tree is grown and is nourishing and it bears good fruit. But like he said, we are the branches of the olive tree, and if we fall into unbelief, those branches get broken off. They were broken off for unbelief. Now, the whole idea is we want to be grafted into that olive tree. We want to be grafted back in into the, the holy root. As it said, the root was holy. We need to be fed and nourished. A branch broken off will die and will perish on its own. So the idea is this. We need to get back to our source of life that, so that we might be grafted into what God is wanting to share with us and to teach us. And that is the, the nature of this entire passage of Scripture. Now, it talks about how it doesn't matter whether you're natural branches, wild branches, or whether this tree that is wild by nature. And then it says, a, then how much greater is a branch grafted back into its own tree? This is talking about those that might hear the testimony of Gentiles coming into faith, but then those who are actually of Israel by nature, how much more powerful is it when somebody who is actually literally the heritage of Israel comes back into the faith that is appropriate for Israel, comes back into the belief in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For many who have bloodlines that that can be traced back to Israel, how many of them walk secular lifestyles in any thing that they want to say or do in any way that they want to act? And then when that person comes to their senses, comes to life, and then realizes the, the, the heritage and the faith that they should have in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and comes back into the fold, grafted back into the original tree, how much greater is that? What kind of how, how, the, the, the rejoicing of the family reunion-like aspect is, is wonderful in that case. That's not to say that, once again, there are all have to be grafted back in. That doesn't make the one that was natural greater than the one who was wild. Or we all are become co-heirs to the kingdom when we come into faith and testimony in Yeshua the Messiah. We all want to become back a part of this olive tree. Now, here's the connection back to our Torah portion. Why an olive tree? What's so special about olives? What, what, that, that they are, that, that they, it's, in fact, olives are this kind of thing where it's like some people you might run into, they, they don't like olives. And olives are... Uh, they have to be, you know, brine before they really are edible. What, what, what is the whole nature of the olive tree and why is it likened unto this way? Well, one, it is a very fruitful tree as far as the yield of olives that come off of a tree and off of a single tree. There's, and there's, the leaves are so small and it's like the, there's a lot packed into a small space when it comes to an olive tree. The wood of an olive tree is, is fascinating in its winding, wavy wave, waves that that it's, it's not uniform, it's very organic, if I could say, say so, that it's like, it looks like this living organism that, that truly is, um, it, it's a spectacle to behold if you ever get to go to Israel or go somewhere where you can see what a wild olive tree really looks like, one that's been growing for a very long time, such as the ones that are still in the Garden of Gethsemane even to this day. <clears throat> Excuse me. And again, going back to our Torah portion, these olives were meant to be pressed and to be used as fuel into oil, to be used as fuel for the menorah so that light might shine forth. 
Now, that's now the, the, the commandment specifically, we, we, we can start drawing some parallels immediately to the pressing and the crushing of the olives produces the fuel that brings light into the world. Okay, well, we can start t- teaching about the Messiah in a few short steps, easily talking about how he was pierced and crushed for our iniquity so that then the light of the world could shine forth. That's the testimony of Yeshua. Same thing with the olive. You can't use the fuel of the, and the oil of an olive without it being beaten, crashed, crushed, pressed, and, and pulverized. Otherwise, you don't get the goodness out of the fruit and out of the olive. Such is the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. By his stripes we are healed, and without the pressing and the crushing and the, the crucifixion of the Messiah, we do not receive the life-giving benefits of that fruit of the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. So likening the olive to the Messiah, we can do this very easily. In Judaism, they liken the olive tree unto Israel, that Israel has been persecuted for for many years, and that it is the testimony of Israel that they still thrive, even though they've been pressed, crushed, uh, oppressed in, in the course of all of history and time, that then it's that Israel still is fruitful in that the yield that comes out of Israel, the spiritual heritage that comes from Israel, is still alive, strong, powerful, and, and can, can nourish many others uh, after it, in the same way that olives are crushed and pressed, and then you get the goodness out of the fruit. Obviously, the rabbis don't believe in Yeshua. For those of us that do have a testimony of the Messiah, we see this parallel. We, and we, we liken it unto the same. I don't got any issue with the idea of relating Israel to the olive tree. But then the old idea is that the Messiah himself came from that same tree, that same branch, that same, uh, that same root, that it's the Messiah, that his heritage is also in Israel as well. Again, also with the olive is this. Other things and, and that can come from the pressing and crushing of olives to create oil. It can be used for cooking. Like I said, I've already been talking about nourishing. It can be used to make soap, which is a common uh, use of olives, especially in the Middle East. And when you think about the Messiah who washes us clean in, and he makes us clean from our sin, the parallel and the symbolism of soap coming from the same material, that also makes perfect sense as well. So there's all these fascinating parallels to the idea and the concept of an olive tree. Now, the one part that I want to that I want to emphasize, though, however, is this is the oil that comes from uh, the olive oil that comes from the pressing of olives as well. The purest oil, what it also can be used for and what it definitely relates to our Torah portion is, is the use of anointing. That is where you take oil that you anoint over and you, you elevate the status of somebody by anointing them to a certain job, a certain task, a certain role. And this is absolutely prevalent in our Torah portion. It be, it's, it's no coincidence that our, our portion here begins talking about olive oil and then continues on about the consecration of the high priests and Aaron in particular as the high priest, that he was anointed to do that job. Now, what, why, is this, what, why is this important? Well, the Messiah himself, too, was also anointed to be the Messiah elevating his status to a certain level. If you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. We have this curious passage here, which, truth be told, it's not. It's a quote actually from the book of Isaiah, but we find it here in our New Testament, where we have a story about Yeshua going to the synagogue on a Sabbath day, as it was his custom, 
and that he was handed a book from the prophet Isaiah and he opened and he read a certain passage of scripture. Now, us, you know, looking at this saying, it's all like, hey, well, what scriptures did, did Yeshua read? Well, here we have one from Isaiah chapter 61. And you, you can sit there and you can turn to Isaiah 61 and you can, the next time you open it, actually put the note in your Bible and say, Yeshua read this. When he went to a synagogue, he was handed a book and these words were spoken. And you too can read those same words. That's kind of a cool thought if you think about it. But here he gave, he, he said these words, and there's a very uh, specific phrase about what he said in this quote from Isaiah, where it says this, he found this passage where it was written, this comes from Isaiah 61, verse 18 of Luke 4, it um, gives the quote, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? This is when they start talking about like... You know, that they start rejecting him and it's all like, this is that guy from Nazareth. It's like, who is this? Who is this guy? And that's where the, the, the story turns. But what I want to point out is the Messiah fulfilling a prophecy where that he was going to be one that the spirit of Lord was put upon him. He has been anointed, preaching the gospel, proclaiming liberty, giving sight to the blind. When has there ever been another instance in which somebody has healed those that are blind and given them sight? Don't have records in history, especially not ones that were born blind. They were born without the ability to see. There's, there's obviously people you might say your regular ophthalmologist would, uh, optometrist would, you know, give you, put a contact in your eye and suddenly you can see again. It's not blurry anymore. It's like you could say that that's a, that's a miracle. Well, but we know with modern medicine, that's something that you, you wouldn't attribute what a doctor can do with, with technology and glasses and, and give, recover somebody's sight. What's being talked about here is obviously miraculous in nature. And the Messiah said, he said to the people there, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Once again, there's that biblical word fulfilled. Does that mean that the scripture doesn't matter anymore? Of course not. This scripture now becomes full of meaning to now understand what the prophet Isaiah was talking about. He was talking about the Messiah who would come and who would be the one who would preach the gospel, proclaim liberty, give liberty to those who are oppressed this is the work of the Messiah, and he has been anointed to do that task. Now, this is the time in which the Messiah spoke and talked about um, how he was anointed to be, do this role, to be this, to be the Messiah. But then he was literally anointed with oil back in, and it's recorded in several of the Gospels, but I'm going to go ahead and take you to Matthew chapter 26. And this is the anointing of the Messiah at Bethany, which this story is, is well known and understood. And, and there's actually some question about this. This is where he's living in the house of a leper, which some people still hold that against the Messiah to this day, that he uh, that he interacted with those that were leprous, sinners, all of these things. But then where oil was literally put upon him. And it's done in this curious way. It's done by 
it's done by a, a woman that was was there while they were there, and it's like it seems like the the oil was 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 put on him and maybe an inappropriate way in some way, form or fashion. But what the Messiah said afterwards is what takes special note, especially for us in the, our modern times. Let me read the story here. Matthew 26 and verse 6, it says this. And when Yeshua was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask, a very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it out on his head and he sat at the table. And when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why the waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor when it had this, this great value to it. But Yeshua was aware of it. And he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me, for you have the poor with you always. But me, you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, whenever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. This is actually a compliment going to this woman, which is not identified specifically, that when she came and she did this and she poured out this oil, that she was doing something great in the annals of history, that it should be recorded as a memorial to her that she did this. Well, what did she do? She anointed the Messiah. She put the oil, the fragrant oil upon his head so that he might be declared the right, holy, acceptable sacrifice, that he might be anointed to be king over all the earth, to be the Messiah, that this is something he is the anointed one. In fact, this is the other thing that, too, you, you can't help but not bring this out. The fact that he is called the Christ, which is the Greek word, of course, that is, is translated from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means anointed one. The very thing that we call him, whether you call him Jesus Christ or you call him the Messiah, Yeshua the Messiah, he is the anointed one. That is the title by which we give, give God. It's almost like his last name that we even con consider it to be. As he is the anointed one. This is the work of the woman that brought this costly fragrant oil and made and assured that he literally fulfilled the role and the title of being the anointed one. Now, why is that? What, what, what does that what does that mean for us necessarily? Well, that means that he is anointed just as the high priest was anointed. I brought out last week talking about in the book of Hebrews. In fact, we'll go we'll go again to the book of Hebrews talking about how, <clears throat> excuse me, about he is our high priest, that he is the one who is the intercessor between the common man and between God and that between and Israel. And he did and performed and worked at the service of the master, the king of the universe. And here in um, Hebrews chapter four, at verse 14, it says this, seeing that we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Yeshua, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the role of the high priest. When somebody came 
to give an offering to the Lord. Obviously, people often gave, you know, out of the, the abundance and, and out of their, the love that they had, peace offerings and Thanksgiving offerings and all of these different things. But ultimately, what our brain always go, tends to, to think about is the time in which somebody needed to come to the altar to, the, to make a sacrifice was because they were in their time of need. They had sinned. They had made a mistake. They are in need of, of, of prayer and supplication and wanting to know what the Lord wants to do or lead them from one step to the next. Or, or, and they need forgiveness for the sin they committed against their brother. And they need to come back into right standing with the Lord. So they're going to bring a sacrifice. And that's actually where our brain tends to go with the idea and the concept of why would we need to come to the presence of God? Because we're in our time of need. Because we need, we need God in our life. That is why we would enter into his presence. That's why we worship him. That's where we enter, when we praise him, when we study his word, we're desiring to enter into his presence because we need him, his salvation. We need his life. We need, we, we need all of those things so that we can sustain ourselves. We need God. And it was the high priest that fulfilled the role, the intercessor between us and God. And that's who Yeshua is to us, is the high priest. Aaron, the high priest, was called Mashiach. If you go into the original Hebrew, back into, into our Torah portion, talking about when that he was anointed, that every time that they would anoint him with oil, the, the verb to anoint is the Hebrew word Mashiach. And then when somebody is called the anointed one, he is called Mashiach, the anointed one. And Aaron, the high priest, was specifically and literally called in the book of Leviticus and other parts of scripture. He was called in the Hebrew, Hakohen HaMashiach, the anointed priest. At one point, yeah, he's called the, the high priest, the great priest, Kohen HaGadol. But Kohen HaMashiach, the Aaron, the high priest, literally carried with him the same name, same title that we give to the Son of God, the Savior, our Savior. And this is the role of the high priest. He was anointed with oil when he was consecrated. And it says specifically the oil dripped from his beard when it, when it came to Aaron. So that he was consecrated to do the job and the role of high priest, to be that intercessor. Yeshua followed the same pattern. Anointed with oil upon his head with a fragrant oil so that he might be elevated to the status and the level to be our intercessor between us and God. This is, the role, this is the fulfillment of Yeshua becoming our high priest. And this is the role that he, this is one of the roles that he plays for us in our relationship to God. He is Mashiach. He is the anointed one. One of the other fascinating things about that passage I was reading from Hebrews, we're talking about how he was a high priest without sin. This is actually a teaching that is done from Judaism about the high priest. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> the high priest had to hold himself to a very high standard uh, level and standard as far as how he carried himself, presented himself. Now, every man still is not uh, there's no man that's without sin, but he still had to when it came to the garments, they all had to be right and righteous and, and appropriate in every role and task that he did in performing the services of the tabernacle on his garments. He had the stones of the breastplate that had all the tribes of Israel, and he bore the weight of the tribes of Israel. In fact, there were two stones, onyx stones, that are on the shoulder pieces of the high priest, 
and each of the names of all the tribes of Israel are written there as well. One of the fascinating things, and this is sort of this deeper study that uh, some people have, have brought out, is this, is that in all the listing of the names of the sons of Israel that were written on the shoulders of these, on these stones, on the shoulders of the high priest's garment, there are two Hebrew letters that did not appear anywhere on those stones. Now, you'd have to sit there and you'd have to check, you know, every single letter to figure this out. But somewhere, somewhere along the line, somebody did figure this out. And the two Hebrew letters that don't appear anywhere on those stones is a het and a tet, which those two letters put together form the root of the word hata, which is sin. The understanding is, is that you can take this two different ways. One, the high priest bears the sins of all Israel which also is a parallel to what the Messiah did when he took his sins and all of our shame and all of the punishment that we were due for our sin upon himself in the course of the crucifixion. That relates. And also in the idea that those two Hebrew letters weren't found on those shoulders, so nowhere could be found on those, in those letters the word sin. Sin could not be found. He was, he was to operate as the high priest and this understanding that he is without sin. The Messiah himself, too, as it said in Hebrews, was without sin. This, again, another parallel to the, to the Messiah, the anointed one, being our high priest, the Kohen HaMashiach. Also in Revelation chapter 19, uh, talking about the garments that was created as well. These garments, as it's described in our Torah portion, were made for beauty and for majesty. These garments were holy, were, were ornate, and they were more, um, they, they had more beauty to them than any normal bit of garments that had ever been created. In fact, it's, 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 when it says that it was created for majesty, what actually it is, is that, <coughs> excuse me, is that these were garments fit for a king. So not only is the Messiah the priest, and does the high priest do, do the role of priest, but the garments that he wears is actually an elevated status, is a status symbol based on the garments that he is, he is almost like treated, should be treated like royalty. That the garments are, are majestic in nature and that he is, they, that he's like a king. Well, the Messiah himself carried this same title as well. Where in Revelation chapter 19, it says that the, the Messiah, when he comes back on earth, written on his thigh, it says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And it was originally proclaimed by the angel to Mary that what he was going to do is he was going to that he was going to sit on the throne of Jacob, that he was going to become king over all of Israel. This is the conversation he had with Pilate, where he says, "Hey, I understand that you're a king," and this is the that the, the Messiah fulfilled this role of not only being our high priest and being the anointed one and the anointed priest, but he also fulfills the role of being the king. There is no role or, or job described in scripture or really anywhere else that you could ever come up with in this world that better relates the idea that one person occupies a certain office and he is adorned with majesty and is equivalent to royalty, yet he also does this work and this job as a servant in the priesthood that serves in the tabernacle of God. The priest, the high priest embodies that exact role. This is why we're taught these things in Torah. We might sit here and say, look, we don't have a priesthood. Why are we talking about the garments of the priest? And why are we talking about the tabernacle? 
tabernacle doesn't exist anymore. Ark of the Covenant, we don't know exactly where it is. There's no temple. Why do we emphasize all these things in the Torah portion? Because they all point to the Messiah. When the Messiah said that you, if you had believed Moses' words, he wrote of me, then you sit there and you're like, well, where exactly did he write of him? Well, he described the entire idea of an anointed priest that is clothed in majesty, which is what one of the things we say all the time and when we're singing uh, uh, songs of praise to the Lord, and that he is clothed in majesty, yet also serves like a servant. This is once again the roles that Messiah played, that he was the role of a servant. He got down in the dirt on the ground and he washed the feet of his disciples. The divine son of God got down on his feet and washed the dirt and grime and mud off of his, the feet of his disciples. Why? So that we could understand that the Messiah is a servant who serves the brethren and serves God, like a priest. That's what a priest does. Serves God, serve, how God has prescribed for him to be worshipped. For incense to be on this altar here, for light to be in this menorah here, for bread to be on this table here, for sacrifices to be on that altar there. And this is how we're supposed to worship. And God has commanded the priest to work and to serve in this way. It's a job that where we serve God. At the same time, you have people coming in through the door. And they want to give a gift to God. They want to worship the Lord. And they also serve them as well. They make the way and, the, and they, they, they follow all of the appropriate boundaries and procedures to bring that sacrifice in so that the man of Israel can worship the Lord and enter into the presence of God as an intercessor between Israel and God. There is, uh, I don't know if there is a more profound parallel teaching to the role of Yeshua in our lives, the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, that better describes what his role is. He is our high priest. The book of Hebrews, I like the fact that the book of Hebrews makes it a point to point that out. The truly understanding that it points back to the relating the Levitical priesthood to the Messiah. That the work and the services and the sacrifices and the role of the high priest fits and parallels the Messiah without sin, which is what was said even above the high priest as well. So, all of these things all come together to be one of the most profound connections to the Messiah that many people, it's sad that many people fail to realize this. If whether we just have not spent enough time in our Christian faith in the Old Testament, if we look at the, the long, detailed, repetitive words of in, here in Exodus of what they were to do to consecrate the priesthood, in the giving of the offerings, in what the garments looked like, we just, I don't know if we have, some people have written this text off as not being important or thinking that it's some archaic thing that's done away with. When it cannot be further from the truth that this text is alive and powerful and is essential for us to understand who Yeshua is to us. That is how we should approach anytime we're talking about the tabernacle, the altar service, and the priesthood, and particularly the high priest, all of it points to the Messiah. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't draw a better parallel for you other than the fact that this is the role that Yeshua plays for us as our intercessor between us and God. When he said, no one goes to the Father except through him, 
that's just like the priesthood where nobody came into the presence of God to see and to, to be in the presence of the power and the glory of God unless there was a priest there to do the work and the service. And that is the, Yeshua's role to us. So with that said, let us uh, pray before the Lord, thanking him for his sacrifice, for playing that role, for being our intercessor, and for being the Mashiach, the anointed one, in accordance with Scripture and the law of Moses. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time, this opportunity. Father, may we always look to you, your power and your glory, Lord, and and the majesty, Father. You are King of kings and you are Lord of lords. And, Father, we humbly submit to you, your power, your work. Father, we thank you for the service that you provide to us, for sending your Son, Yeshua, to die for our sins, to be the propitiation for the mistakes that we have made for, for being our Lord and Savior. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you have elevated him and anointed him to be the intercessor, that you, you desire to dwell with us, Father, and you make a way for even us who are unclean, unworthy, you still make a way for us to come into your presence and to worship you. Father, what an honor and a blessing that it is that we can come into your presence and that we can worship you, and that you have made a way for us to receive salvation, to receive life from your life giving from, from the root, Lord, of the family of Israel, Lord, and that you can sustain us and nourish us and strengthen us. Father, we bless you, and we, Father, may we, be, may we find the honor some, in the kingdom, Lord, to be the one that brings the oil, Lord, brings the oil that is, is that lights the menorah and be, it brings the oil lord that would be the anointing upon the high priest and father may may we all worship at your feet lord in everything that you do for us we love you we bless you and we thank you on this sabbath day we thank you for this time and this teaching in yeshua's name amen shabbat shalom Yevarechecha Adonai Vish Merecha you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.
before the Lord our Maker. Worship and bow down. Kneel before the Lord our Maker. Worship and bow down. Kneel before the Lord our Maker. Come and worship and bow down. Kneel before the Lord our Maker. For joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit LLGive.com. Thank you and shalom.